Welcome to Saga Craft. Myths, fairy tales, legends, stories comfort us, inspire us, and heal us. Please join us as we share stories, both old and new. More than anything, we are open to the story and its unfolding. At times, it may be one story told by one person. At times, it's the same story told through three different voices. In the end, we go where the story takes us, and we invite you to follow. I'm C, a writer, artist, and storyteller. I'm Betsy, a medium and teacher of mystery traditions. I'm Gabriella, an artist and practitioner of folk magic. We We are are magical magical fairy godmothers godmothers in in training. training. This week is about house elves. Or tomtes in the Scandinavian tradition. Or domove and domovoi in the Slavic tradition. And my story is a continuation of the story of Tess and Hildur, the goblin cat. Tess woke up with a funny feeling in her tummy. She thought back to what she'd eaten the night before. Not that. She tested it out further. I, Tess, ask that any spirits who are not of this house and family, you must depart. She didn't feel any change. Okay, only what is in this bedroom, I feel. She immediately felt better. Hildur, the goblin cat, had already left her bedroom. Not her. What is in this house, I feel. The funny feeling came back. Okay, it's in the house. She rolled out of bed and put her slippers and robe on, conforming to her mother's requirements, and padded downstairs into the kitchen. The kitchen, as always, felt cozy. In winter, it was always extra cozy. Hildur, the goblin cat, was in her basket by the stove. She chirped at Tess and turned a slightly baleful eye to the corner of the room where the kitchen stove was and made a warning sound low in her throat. There, the tomte of the house was fully manifested, standing with what looked like packed suitcases. As she looked more closely at the house elf dressed for travel and fully apparent to the eye, alarm bells went off in her mind. She could feel her mother wake up abruptly. She turned to look at the counter where her mother's coffee maker was was just finalizing its last drip as her mother, wrapped in her robe, silken and sumptuous in the Ottoman style, came hurrying into the kitchen. The tomte was already pouring her coffee into a porcelain cup. He handed it to her with punctilious solemnity. I'm leaving, madame, he said sadly. Tess noted that there was also excitement in the tomte's expression, a tinge of sadness she could taste and even see as a mauve light around the small figure of the elf. Niels, the tomte, was very trustworthy. He'd been a house elf for the family for many generations. When Tessa's family had arrived in this country a few generations back, Niels had been with them. Her family had come from various Scandinavian countries over the last centuries. Niels had been with them for Sybil's whole life and Tess's up until now. Sybil looked at his suitcases and asked, who died? Nils eyed her with favor. 
my grandfather died in Iceland, and my father chooses me as his successor as he's now in retirement himself. I must return to the farm estate at Svindalur, and there I will take on the duties of Tomte for the entire family in all its locations across Scandinavia and the New World. Sybil, having poured creamer and honey into her coffee and gulped it down, said, I'm sorry for your loss, Nils. I'm sorry for us as well, for we'll all miss you so much. I will miss you so much. And what's to become of us? She gestured to Tess and Hilda in her basket and the whole kitchen with its door to the still room full of herbs off to the side. Nils did not just act as the protector to the whole household, but was the one who held several spectrums of reality in his firm and judicious grip. A household with magical people was sometimes quite unpredictable. Niels handled it all with amazing aplomb. My grandson is due to arrive today. He's been in training for more than a hundred years and is eager to have his own household, though of course he was not looking for anyone's death but willing to wait for his true time. You'll find in him all that is to be necessary. Tess's mother, fortified by coffee and feeling more coherent by the minute, said thoughtfully, This occasion calls for porridge. We must celebrate your promotion and Gudrun's family's gain of your services. Surely you don't have to leave this minute, or do you? The Tomte agreed that celebratory porridge would be appreciated. How are you traveling to Iceland? asked Tess, and then... Oh, don't feel you have to answer. The private affairs of Tomte's were private indeed. Tess realized she had always held to the formal structure of householder to Tomte. Being polite and respecting the privacy of the Tomte and their personal life had been instilled in her from her earliest years. Actually, she realized she knew very little about Niels and took him completely for granted. The slightly stern expression on the Tomte's face softened a bit when he turned his head to her. I'll be sorry to leave you, young miss. He unbent a little more. She thought maybe she could even see a glimmer of tears in his eyes. It's been a privilege to oversee things in your household and watch you grow up. I must say you've always been a very good daughter to your family's house. As to my travel plans, I'll be time walking there so we'll be able to arrive in time for my grandfather's passing. That sounds very intriguing and very sad, of course, said Tess. She had that inquisitive look on her face that her mother knew well. Sybil gave her a warning look with arched brows, which Tess interpreted as, don't pry into things that might make Nils uncomfortable. Tess, having never heard the Tomte speak so much at one time, thought this was a great opportunity to find out things she might never have the chance to ask again. Her mind was racing as she set the kitchen table for breakfast. What is your grandson's name? asked her mother. He's called Torlov, and he is my daughter's son. He's a particularly good match because he's always been interested in beasts and spirits of nature. But with the young Mrs. Goblin Cat and her ability to walk into the other world realms, Torlaf will be quite able to handle any things that might occur with Tess's abilities. And he'll mesh nicely with your interests, madam. Sybil was an herbalist and charmer. 
He has a nice way with plants and what occurs in the kitchen and still room. He has a love of skaldic poetry as well. He sounds quite perfect. Thank you for thinking this through on our behalf. Of course, the training of a tomte in our traditional ways has to take into consideration the talents of the family it serves. We seek the guidance of your family norns to predict what those talent directions might be well ahead so that we may be prepared. Being prepared is the number one virtue for a tomte. Sybil and Tess turned as one to look at the Tomte with surprise. You consult the Norns about us? asked Sybil. You already know what my talents are? asked Tess at the same time. The Tomte looked as though he regretted speaking about this. Your Norns are our Norns as well. They see us as relatives of a sort and so are open to us asking about your lives in relationship to our lives. It's a kind of parallel track, if you will. He said this with a twinge of discomfort at revealing so much. All his training had not quite prepared him to face the full-on power of two inquisitive witches willing him to answer. His momentary feeling of being in limbo, not here fully anymore and not there yet, left him vulnerable to them. How do you do that? asked Tess. How do you find the Norns to ask them? We must wait until February and ask them at the Feast of the Dieselthing in Svinadalur. We do this every year, though frankly, the answers are sometimes the same for years, even decades. It's still worth it to ask. So that's where you disappear every year at that time, said Tess thoughtfully. And you weren't allowed to tell us about it? Not that we aren't allowed, more that we don't want to be asked questions about the Norns. It's happened before that we've had to bring long lists of questions to serve our householders. It takes away from the occasion for us to have to do that. This is a tradition that has been kept for more than a thousand years. Sybil sat down abruptly with her second coffee. The porridge was simmering on the stove. Hmm, that must have been my uncle Peter or Pear. He always had lists of things he was researching or pondering. He could be very tiresome. Indeed, madam, he was exhausting. And he wasn't the one who had to face the Norns himself with the list. Very snarly they can be, terrifying even. Lars used to dread the Disa thing for just that reason. Since then, we've kept it to ourselves. Niels, is there anything ahead of us that we need to know? I'm not prying, it's just that this is unexpected for us, of course, both the change in Tomtes and the conversation. Were you prepared for this change? I was, but not for the actual year that the change happened. A year is a pretty small element of time for a Norn, so that we get a warning, something will occur. We never know exactly when. It's why being prepared is a cardinal virtue for us. We have not heard of any momentous changes ahead, Madame Sybil. Thank you, Niels, you relieved my mind. Will you be waiting until Torlov gets here? And may I send a letter with you to Gudrun and her father? She looked over to where the packed bags were. Neither of them was bigger than her handbag, but each of them could undoubtedly carry a kitchen full of items and probably did. And do take as much marmalade as you can fit in your bags. Take it all if you wish. It's my gift to you. Nils loved her marmalade. 
Torlov and I will meet in transit in Greenland. There I'll give him my blessing that he may prosper and bring prosperity to you. He turned and said to Tess, more about this I can't say, so please don't ask me. Tess subsided with a rueful smile. Later that day, after a toast to the future, bags bulging with marmalade, wearing a cloak with a squirrel fur collar and a jaunty green hood, Nils took his leave of them in the kitchen, bestowing a wave of grace and disappearing with a flourish, leaving behind the scent of cloudberries. Thank you so much. We love Tess. We love Tess. And this was such a beautiful addition to their world and understanding it. And really such a graceful way of honoring where they're from and how magical their world really is. And the full personality of the Tomte as well. Just, it's a person. It's a person like us. So I, I really loved it. Thank you. Yes, it was very beautiful. I loved it as well. And I always loved the Norns. So I was very excited about seeing the Norns. And what strikes me as well in this story is the aspect of a house spirit that is in the house and protects the house and does certain things as they want to or as they choose to, I like to believe. But they're not always seen. And when they are seen, that often speaks of a change or of an event, an occurrence that marks a certain moment in time that wouldn't otherwise allow for them to be seen. Would you say that's, I know that's that's how it is in, in the Slavic house spirit culture, that they're not seen usually, but under certain circumstances. Is that the case as well for the Tomte? I think it's very much the case. And I think that's why it was such a surprise for Tess to come down and see the Tomte fully manifested. And also to recognize that even though she, I'm not even sure quite how old Tess is, but the sense that I ha have with her is that she had taken him such for granted that she'd never had such a long conversation with him in her entire life. I liked the idea too that he was part of the family. I felt it was very moving for both Tess and Sybil not Hildur necessarily, but for those two to know that he saw their families on such parallel tracks and cared so much about them and yet also cared very much for who he was and what he did and what he had to offer. I love how immaculately everything seems planned, that nothing is by chance. The idea of matching resonance of a certain type of Tomte and who could replace them and who could get along it like vetting of a good of a good friend you know because this is such a lifelong relationship not everybody will get along so that resonance is so important here and understanding and the far seeing of gifts and what kind of gifts people carry and families carry and being supported it really is beautiful and so, so kind. Thank you. I felt that. And I, one of the things that I found lovely as in this week, as I was pondering the story and writing it in different segments, was how happy the story made my own house elf. And how we've come to a new understanding about things as I've 
had the opportunity to write it. So I, you know, I definitely gave my house elf the opportunity to share anything that they wanted to share or inspire me and the story in any way. And so I do want to thank my Tomte for showing up so beautifully and for asking for porridge, <laughs> letting me know how important porridge is in the Tomte tradition too. That's been very precious. And a feeling that we've arrived at a whole new accord with each other too. Yes, it feels very real and very alive in your telling it. And I love the honoring of the invisible world, the unseen helpers, and naming them, calling to them and offering to them all that they've given us. So I, I always love that, the honoring the invisible friend, the unseen protector that is probably so tied to our destiny and well-being that we don't even know it. But when we do, it's very profound and beautiful. And one thing I've noticed, I, I mean, I have all kinds of fairy lights in my house for the holiday season. And since I've been writing this story, they go on and off of their own accord <laughs> in different rooms, which, you know, if I'm leaving one room, they go down and they go into the next room and light up. and the batteries and some of them have gone on and on and on in ways that couldn't really be normal or possible. And I know it's my Tomte is helping with all of that. So that's been really sweet also. And as always, I hope that you enjoy every story of Tess and Sybil and Hildur the Goblin Cat. So it's always nice to find out what's going on in their world. It is. It's fabulous. Thank you so much for them. We love them. And the Tomte, we, we hope the Tomte has a beautiful journey and is very happy, as well as the new one. The new one. Looking forward to meeting the new one because yeah. Tarot means Thor's wolf. So it's like, hmm, what are we going to need a Thor's wolf for in the future? Maybe it's that affinity with beasts. Who knows? Can't wait to find out. <laughs> hmm. Well, one thing I want to share before our next story um, is today in the mail from a friend randomly, I received a Tomte. Oh, nice. <laughs> so it's amazing how these things come together and how when we speak to the invisible, the invisible speaks to us. And manifests fully. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I look forward to hearing your story, Gabriella. Thank you. My story is about a Slavic house spirit, the Damove. I didn't used to think of my childhood home much in my younger, busier days, but now that things have slowed down and I raised children of my own who have their own children, I often travel back, so to speak, to where I came from, where my family is from, and I recall all the things that we carried and those we had to leave behind. You wouldn't think so by listening to me that I was from anywhere other than here, the land where so many people came and blended and settled. When we came here to America, it was in search of a better life, one without danger, war, or famine. Strangely enough, the day of our departure, as well as the few days leading to it, sit sharply and in vivid colors in my memory. I can almost feel myself there, leaving all over again, just like it was yesterday. 
There wasn't much time to pack. At times like these, there rarely is. Everything was happening so fast, and we couldn't take much on our journey anyway. Father sold whatever he could that was of value, our two goats, chickens, and some tools, so he could pay for food, voyage, and shelter on our journey. I was too young to understand the severity of the situation or its permanence and the ripples it would make across our family lines. We weren't just leaving our home and village, which people didn't do aside from marriage, but we were moving to a different continent, one which we had to travel to on foot, trained, and even ocean ship. To me, this idea was unimaginable, something I laid awake at night thinking about before I fell asleep. This world we were going to across the land, across the ocean, was so far from everything I knew. My grandfather, Vladek, was most uneasy about this move, but he knew there was no other choice and he wanted to stay with his family, watch me and my younger brother grow up. And as much as he loved his home here, he loved his family more. And my mother told him that if he didn't go, none of us would. And staying was no longer an option. Our country was at war and terrible things were coming our way. The choice and opportunity to leave was closing in and this was the only right thing for us to do. So with a heavy heart, my grandpa made his preparations, which I observed closely as I have been asked by mother and father to stay out of their way during their packing. Both my parents were stressed, and when they got this way, I was always asked to keep to myself or stay with grandfather, who enjoyed my company and would never ask me to leave. Nobody was acting normal those last few days, and everything seemed so surreal in the frenzy of preparations. Opposite of the fast, frantic urgency my parents were driven by, grandpa's space and activities were slow, steady, and tinged with a feeling of something I couldn't quite name that rose like a soft mist of sorrow and change and followed him everywhere he went. He spent a lot of time outside, sitting by his favorite apple tree, touching the bark affectionately, as if consoling a good friend. Before father sold the goats, he spent time with them too, talking to them, letting them know about their new home and why we had to leave. At some point, I even saw him talking to the fence outside, or at least that's what it appeared to, as if an invisible person was sitting on top of it and he was conversing with them. The night before we left, he didn't sleep, but stayed up all night and tended to the fire, which he allowed to burn down to ash for the first time ever. That fire always stayed lit for as long as I can remember. It seemed very ominous to see it dim and fade completely into ash. Grandpa whispered a few words I couldn't quite hear, collected some of the ash into cloth, and wrapped it firmly in a leather pouch, which he put into his traveling bag. As I was falling asleep, I thought I heard him say, it's your choice if you want to stay, but if you come, I promise you will be fed and cared for. At dawn, we departed. Grandpa was the last to leave the house, saying his final farewell to the dwelling and the land that surrounded it, his eyes cloudy with tears. After a few hours of walking under the dim light of dawn, we made it to the train station and got on the train heading south. Grandfather watched through the window as the land changed, as if he was mapping the way that led from his home. 
What are you looking at, Jaju? I inquired, my hand clasped firmly in his, watching him curiously. I am remembering the way back, he said. His thick, dark mustache stubbornly resisted to turn fully gray, lifted over a smile. But I thought we weren't coming back, I said, pondering over his words. No, my sweet Ola, we are not, he replied with a heavy sigh. But it's still good to know the way, just in case, don't you think? Want to remember it with me? Tell me how we left and in what order, he encouraged. We left our house and crossed the farmland and birch woods. After that, we crossed a bridge over the river, then more woods of different trees, then a chapel, then the road thickened and we came through a town, then got on a train that took us through more farmland and more woods of many colors and a big lake, I recalled with great focus, as Grandpa nodded in agreement, adding in some of the details I might have missed. This went on for hours and then days, the moments blending together like the changing landscape before our eyes, the train sounds and steady rhythm lulling me in and out of sleep as I lay across Grandpa's lap, covered by a small blanket. At times, right before falling asleep, my eyes would linger on the darkness of the inside of Grandpa's travel bag, which he held near him at all times. In this darkness, a pair of amber-red eye-like buttons glowed dimly, or so it seemed. It's hard to say what was real and what I might have imagined on that trip, as I was so very tired, and only grew more so in the days and weeks to come. I do remember a couple of occurrences that stand out in importance, and now as I think back, give a greater shape to our family story. At one point of our journey, doing a border check, a uniformed soldier entered our cabin with a serious-looking dog. My father nervously grabbed for his money pouch and handed it over to the uniformed man, who scuffed disappointedly at the amount inside. His sharp eyes looked around our cabin, studying each of us and the few of our belongings. His gaze settled on my grandpa's bag and he pointed to it and loosened his hold on the dog, whose giant head lured over the bag and began sniffing at it invasively. A low, terrifying growl came out of the bag, which made the dog's ears perk up cautiously and he took a step back. Medicine, for me, I'm an old man, please, Grandpa said to the soldier pleadingly as he tapped the bag delicately. The men hesitated, debating on what kind of a soldier he would be that day, his hesitation lingering a little too long. Suddenly, a soft puff sound came out of the bag which only I could hear being so close, and a horrible, sulfurous smell filled our cabin. The man waved his hand around his face in great disdain and took a step back, trying not to gag. The smell was horrible. Even the dog was offended. Fine, fine. You clearly need your medication, the soldier said as he closed the door of our cabin to seal the foulness within it. Jaju, I gasped in disgust. That was not me he said, sounding relieved and chuckling as he opened a small train cabin window. On a later part of our trip, after we boarded the ship, we slept in a big open cabin with other families. Each family huddled together, keeping to themselves, exchanging sometimes friendly, other times fearful glances with others around them. All of us, though we couldn't understand each other, were held by the same fear and sorrow which we tried to conceal during the day with hope and excitement 
But at night, its true expression floated in the shape of many shadows over our sleeping heads. Some of these shadows lurked and crawled close to the ground, took on the appearance of cats, dogs, small people with pointed hats, and other beings I've never seen before. One night, I was awakened by a shaggy gray cat, which hovered over my head, its huge yellow eyes peering into mine as soon as I came to. Before I could cry out, a black furry shape jumped out of Grandpa's bag and growled ferociously at this creature, causing a bit of a stir in the cabin and waking up some of the children. The cat, defeated, backed away slowly and found its way back to the corner where its family slept. Grandpa woke up too and carefully, softly opened his bag wider until the black furry creature who defended me curled back inside. I stared at Grandpa with surprised, terrified eyes. He didn't say anything or explain what just happened, but put a finger to his lips. Shh, everything is fine. Go back to sleep. Exhausted and scared, I did just as he said, catching a glimpse of his hand reaching for some bread he didn't eat earlier that day and putting it in his bag. The soft waves of the ocean around us swaying me into a deep sleep. That was the last thing I remember of our ship journey. By the time we arrived in our new home, I remember even less than any of the details of our long travels. Overwhelmed by the unfamiliar landscape, different language and customs, everything whirls around in my memory like a faraway dream. Few things stand out from that time when we first arrived. Our small but clean house on an open farm, the color of red sunsets so different from the soft pink of our own back home, and the smell of grass, the same and familiar, comforting. The kindness of strangers who came to bring us food when we first arrived, many of them immigrants like us, understanding our challenges, offering advice and navigation tools of our new home. That first night, grandfather lighting the hearth fire and saying a few words to it as the rest of us watched quietly, too tired to do anything more. I didn't see much of my father in those first few years. He worked very hard, wanting to prove himself in this new land and earning his place of belonging here, and for us too. My mother kept her house immaculately clean, baked and sewed constantly. Her beautiful cakes and embroidered handkerchiefs became a favorite treat in our new community, and she warmed the hearts of the other women nearby who became like family to us. I was encouraged to play with the other children as much as possible so I could learn the new language enough to start school when I came of age. I didn't want to at first. I'd rather stay home with mother and my little brother and grandpa, but even he told me it was important to do so. Eventually, I started to enjoy my new friends. The new words started to form on my lips effortlessly, and I could share and laugh freely, joyfully. The memories of what was before are fading away slowly. Grandpa didn't seem too interested in learning the new language. He spent most of his time at home, tending to the fire, or outside on the porch where he would look into the distance while smoking his pipe. He would often ask me to recall the steps that led us here from where we came from encouraging me to keep this map and share it with my brother when he got older and at some time in the future, my own children. I didn't really understand why this was so important to him, except now that I am his age, I most certainly do. 
Remembering him and his commitment to keeping us alive here in our own ways always brings tears to my eyes. This is almost the most important gift that he left behind. And what of the bag, you might ask? What of the glowing eyes and the growls that emerged from it, as I remembered? To be honest, I almost forgot about all that, as I was necessarily busy adapting to my new life and ways of being fully here. But just because I forgot for a moment doesn't mean that none of that happened during our travels. What Grandpa Fwadik carried was so much more than I could ever imagine or even understand until much later. When I was 13, Grandpa Vladik died, which was the first truly sad and devastating time of my life. A few days before his death, I was visited at night by a small, black, furry, human-like creature. He had a huge mustache and eyes that glowed with amber fire. I was scared at first, but then as I looked at him, I saw a great sweetness and sorrow reflected in his eyes, and it was so familiar and comforting to me. He sat by my bed and watched me as I watched him. The next morning, I told my grandfather about what I saw, recalling the strange events from our journey around this creature. Grandpa Vladek smiled sadly and made me promise that I wouldn't cry much after he died, and more importantly, that I would make sure that the house fire is always lit and that a small plate of bread and some milk is left near the hearth. I don't understand, the Jaju. What are you saying? I blinked in confusion, trying to dispel the dawning realization that something heavy and inevitable would soon happen, and I couldn't stop it. The Domove showed himself to you, Ola, which means that the master of the house, which would be me, will soon die, Grandpa explained slowly as I shook my head defiantly. Ola! It's my time. I am tired and I am old, and I'm so grateful that he let me know so I can tell you how to care for him and their family after I leave. Knowing this means he will bless you as I bless you, always, and will watch after you no matter where I go. Grandpa Vladek did die peacefully and asleep a few days after that morning, and I'm sorry to say, dear listener, that I couldn't fully keep his promise and cried much more than he would have liked. But as he requested, I kept the fires lit and a plate of bread and milk near the hearth every day. On special occasions and holidays, butter and goat cheese were added to our Domova's meal, which he appreciated surely and continued to bless our family for years and decades to come. There are many stories I can share about our Domova. Some funny, some less so, as by his nature he was prone to mischief. But, through it all, he kept the spirit of my grandfather and our country alive in our hearts and home, sharing with me what I now share with my own grandchildren. The end. That was so lovely. Thank you. And cinematic in its descriptions of things. I mean, I would love to see a film made of this. <laughs> was very, very beautiful. I loved the trip. I love the idea that the grandfather may be going on that journey in reverse as well. And that was important for him. And I applaud the 
decision of the Domovoy, is that how you say it, the Domovoy? The Domovoy, yes. Yeah. Yeah, to go to the new world, to this new place and be willing. Thank you so much. I really applaud everyone in this story and, and really feel very moved by it. I, I, have, I really didn't know what my story was going to be until today as I it was coming through. But it was clear that it was so much more, and it always is so much more than about one being. When we are talking about culture and especially migrating people, moving across the world, leaving their homes, there's something so precious and intimate about those decisions and the journey itself and how that shapes the family forever. Felt very tender to me. It felt very personal. Like it was very personal to you and your family. And that definitely was part of its beauty and part of its power. And I'm, I'm so always so grateful to know something more about the citizens, the beings of the unseen, usually unseen world. Right. <laughs> you know, the mostly unseen world, I guess we could call it. And the way that you described that being appearing and showing up and defending its turf, so to speak, was, was quite wonderful. And the physical description of them in that way, too. So really lovely. Thank you. Very beautiful. And so interesting to think that when we have a long family liaison with an alliance, really is in a powerful alliance with a being from the other world, who lives longer than we do as human beings, what kind of choices get presented to them and how brave it is for them to go to the new world also, rather than finding somebody in the old world to be with. My compassion and my admiration goes to that being. He had a choice. Well, and he was given the choice very clearly. Yeah. Well, and one thing that may not be maybe obvious to all of our listeners here about the Domove and Slavic culture is that it really is tied to the ancestors. So though they are connected to the home more so than any of the other land spirits that are around there, they often take on the appearance of the last ancestor that passed. So there is often a resemblance in the family line. So they are like the Desir or they are like the blessed fire of the family line, which is another reason why the hearth fire should never go out. Mm. It's because that is the life of the home. And people didn't leave their homes. The landscape that I'm specifically talking about and referring to is Poland in the 1940s. So people that lived on farm and lived in villages, they didn't leave. <laughs> it was it was to leave, they would maybe people married, they would go into a different household that was usually in a nearby village where they could still see their family from before. But even that was devastating because there's such a tie to the land and the home and the spirits of the home. Then the journey itself and the remembering the way back was really for the grandfather and for his family to know the way back. And for the Domovu as well. That's definitely the sense that I had too, and about the the power of where your land has been, your family has been, where your ancestors have been, where they're buried. That all is so much importance for people. And to have a being who's so intimately connected and 
is that part of the culture that there would be some person, one person who would be the one who would really be in relationship to that? Yes, it would be whoever the head of the household is. So that which usually meant whoever was the oldest. And that was also the person who would carry on the family traditions and be sort of the keeper of that fire. So in this case, it was the grandfather, which is another reason he felt like he needed to go with them, even though he would prefer to stay. And the Damovid loved him and he loved the family. So interesting, though, that, that they're shape-shifting beings that can take on the appearance or persona of someone. And they are often seen at times of danger or times of they do. That is one of the gifts they offer is they let the family know when someone will die, usually that the house, you know, the elder, that is a time when they are visible. Slavic lore is a little grim, but it was a blessing to know in that way. I mean, I don't know that I would want to think of it as grim as so much as realistic. Right. supportive of what's happening and that's the job of a domovoi or a, a tomte or a house elf in any instances to be really on top of whatever it is that's happening in support of what's occurring and what can unfold in a good way thank you for that that's a much better take on <laughs> on that reality it is well i mean if i think of being a a being from the other world who lives for 500, 1,000 years by our years and who's in service to people who live, you know, in some times, maybe 40 years, 60 years at the most or something like that. And they see a lot of different generations. And that would be a lot of death, a lot of change, a lot of changes within the structure of the family as well. And that is something that house elves or beings, Tomte's beings who are in intimate relationships with particular families would be connected with over time. And there's a sense of solace in that too. And this eternal place of belonging or being part of a bloodline or lineage where death is a natural part of the cycle, but the cycle continues through the living. So it is this beautiful extension of life and memory and custom and tradition. Uh, Really such a sense of that being, being real. And for myself, I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to meet them in this story. Me too. Me too. Thank you for letting me share this story with you both. And special thanks to the fantastic Zoe Magic for her phenomenal editing skills.